welcome to Staying Alive, with apologies to the Bee Gees. Um, we're going to see how we go today. What we've been doing is looking at a series called Tackling the Unspoken Issues. Um, doing something slightly different to how this series was last year. Last year, sort of, all of the, the, the topics were quite sort of taboo topics that are perhaps not often talked about. So later on this week, Thursday and Friday, we have got food and we have got addiction um, as sort of you know, particular topic areas. But what I'm trying to do for the first three seminars of this track is give you a bit of an overview about stuff that, yes, is helpful if you have an issue, but actually stuff that's also really helpful to your average Christian. And actually, you could argue that perhaps one of the reasons why we have issues in certain areas is because this sort of stuff is not talked about that much from the front. So, so yesterday, we we're talking about making changes. And we were saying that Whilst some of the sort of classic texts that are often given from the Bible do tell us about our starting point, you know, with sin and forgiveness and being filled with the Holy Spirit and our destination, which is being like Jesus and, um, you know, involved in the, in the life of the church, there's perhaps less detail in those proof texts about how you actually change. So I introduced a couple of psychological models, one from, from business and one from clinical work. And I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I work for the NHS in, in Scotland. And Jonathan, who's with me, is um, uh, organizational or business um, psychology. Going to be a student and has been working, um, and he's going to be doing a master's this year. So if you want business questions, talk to him. Clinical questions, talk to us. Church questions, talk to Kat. At the back, give us a wave from the William Wilberforce Trust, who are very kindly hosting this stream. And there's a lot of narrative in the Bible, but it's often missing in the proof text, and there's a lot we can learn from psychologists. What I want to try and do today is talk about, okay, once you've changed, and perhaps it's not necessarily about perfection and prosperity, but it's about moving from a place where you're trapped to a place where you are able to change. You know, freedom is about being able to change. It's not necessarily being out of prison, as Paul knew. It's about being able to change, if you want to, about having control over what is going on as much as you are able to. Because we do work with a God who's sovereign and sometimes calls us to difficult places. Um, so today we're talking about what does it mean to be healthy. And again, I'm going to sort of do a little bit of a, okay, there's some stuff we know from um, good teaching that you might have had already, but I want to take you to a slightly different level with a couple of psychological models. And you've got quite a wordy handout um, Please, if you can, keep your eyes away from that. We'll be getting to that soon. You'll have less of me today and more small group discussion as we look at these first two models. But what I'd like you to do initially is perhaps in groups of two and three, and don't forget, as everyday focus goes on, you can be more open, more um, as open as you want to be with your neighbor. But, you know, do, do share what's on your heart. There's no point in giving the right answers. And the answer, by the way, is not usually Jesus in this seminar. <laughs> It often is, but, you know, there's more complex answers than that. What I'd like to do is share, to the per share with the person next to you, what do you know about saying, staying spiritually healthy? So, for example, if I said to you, what do you know about staying physically healthy? You'd all say, go with Paul Cowley and do British military fitness. Rah, rah, yeah, in the morning, okay? So, or you'd say, go to the gym or eat five fruit and veg a day or something like that. What do you know about staying spiritually fit? What do you know about staying emotionally fit? Because there's um, a guy, Raj Passad, who was a, a sort of British TV psychiatrist, and he, he sort of did this big survey in the UK. And what he found out was that most people came up with things like, um, try and do the Times crossword, have a healthy work-life balance, 
And after that, they didn't really know much about staying emotionally fit, much about staying spiritually fit. So British Army fitness aside, which, of course, is a great way to stay spiritually fit, because Paul says he beats his body and subdues it, lest it, lest it sneak up on him. Um, so there's something in there about spiritual fitness. But um, just in your small groups, just for a few minutes, and then we'll take some brainstorming ideas back. Off you go. Just, just while you're finishing off, there's a website address at the top of your handout, mindandsoul.info forward slash focus. Um, Word versions of this, all of my PowerPoint slides, which has got everything on them, and also the audio from today is, is going to be on that site in about a week or so. The audio will also be on the HTB site if you want to pass that around. Um, so my lovely assistant, Jonathan, give him a round of applause, I think, for the lovely Debbie. Is going to do a bit of scribing. What, what kinds of things have we got in this group here about how to stay spiritually, mentally healthy? Fellowship. Good. Tell us what you mean by fellowship. It's going to push you a little bit because it's quite a broad term. Fine. So, so being part of a, you know, you can't be a Christian by your own. And I suppose I'd make a slight distinction between being part of a local church and actually really being part of a community. Those are two slightly different things. But I guess a lot of people would say being part of a church would, would be a key part. It's, it's great if there's more than that. Yeah. Anything else at the front section here? Bible reading. Yep. Yep. In the middle. Yep. Getting enough sleep. Yes. Yeah. The, I mean, these things are, are not going to... You can't write books about them. Um, but, you know, they are really important, aren't they? So, you know, they don't, they don't sound clever, but they're, they're foundational. Yep. At the back there, sharing and trusting. Yep, yep, good. Anything about so, 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 so being emotionally healthy? Anything about being sort of spiritually healthy from that corner? What about what about the other back corner over there? Anything sort of spiritually healthy side over there? Praying. Yep, and sorry, right at the back. So a balance of relationships, some relationships you give into, some relationships you receive from. Yep. Yep. And what sort of things have we got here at the front? Yep. Staying away from tunnel. Carnal things. Right. Okay. So some don't do's and then some do do's as well. Yep. Okay. Good. Anything that's, yep. So prayer and prayer and fasting, you know, I think is a recommended thing. And this kind only come out by prayer and fasting or whatever it is. There's a number of different things. Yeah, yeah. Anything else that we haven't sort of touched on? Yeah. Fine. So sort of bigger, bigger God. Yeah, yeah. And getting outside of, of, of church into creation. Yeah. At the, at the back. Yes, not to get completely freaked out by doubts, that's a good one, and trying to trust or, or believe in things that are, that, are, that, are, that are firm. Yep, and something here? Repenting. Yep, yep, so sort of having a strategy for your life, I suppose, and, and moving forward, yep. And the, I think those are actually really, really good collection of stuff. So we have some stuff that was about being spiritually healthy, some stuff that was about being emotionally healthy, um, you know, and I was just brainstorming this with some, some friends this morning, and we were just talking about, you know, what are the sort of usual things that you might get asked if, for example, you went to seminary or you were 
asked to be a, a, a small group leader or a ministry leader or something like that. Some of those things might be, might be talked about, and some of those things are on the standard curriculum, but actually some of them are, are not on the standard curriculum. I think the, the thing about you know, going up into the mountains once in a while and getting a good night's sleep, you'd be amazed at how often those things are, are sort of missed out. And I was doing a little bit of reading through several sort of fairly well-known books that have the word discipleship in the title and you'd be amazed at how many of them are very sort of task orientated so for example and these things are not wrong I'm just saying they're not the whole picture so it's things like read the bible go to church share your faith study theology pray fast the, these things are all good but they're, they're, they're quite sort of activity based and sometimes we need some sort of stuff around the side like get a good night's sleep another one might be have some friends who are not Christians. Another one might be have some questions that you haven't answered yet and be happy with that. There's a whole bunch of things in there that are to do with being sort of spiritually healthy and emotionally healthy that are not in the standard list of of sort of discipleship books. And one of the reasons for wanting to sort of say that is when we were thinking about what is this seminar about? I've been to lots of seminars on, on discipleship and they normally sort of give you a list of about five or six things, like, for example, have you thought about spending time in prayer and fasting? It's not wrong to spend time in prayer and fasting, but, you know, the things I've been told in discipleship seminars before are perhaps not the whole picture. They're they're quite task-based. They're quite curriculum-based, that you can go on a course and you can spend a week learning about each of these things and then put it into practice. Um, One of the reasons I wanted to do this seminar is perhaps the idea that becoming mature spiritually is slightly more complex than that. It's slightly more complex than, okay, I've done a, a, a two-day fast, I've read the Bible. Because it is life is more complex, and it's often not to do with the tasks that you're following. And there's, there's, there's quite a few problems with, with the task-based thing as well. So, um, you know, one of the problems is that if you, lit- if you take this advice literally... And I've, I've seen people do this, take it literally. What you end up with is you end up with Christian leaders or, or a, apparently mature Christian people who know their Bible, who go to church, who share their faith. But somewhere along the line, they missed out having a good night's sleep, having, a having some non-Christian friends, going up into the mountains once in a while having some things that they're not sure about because they're so keen to, to be sure and to be seen to be sure. So, so I suppose what I'm saying is when you're reading some of these books about discipleship, we need to take them in that kind of context, which is they're not a set of tasks that you can describe Christian healthiness in. They're more a set of spiritual practices that the church has found useful over the years. That's what the spiritual disciplines are. They're things that the church fathers and the Old Testament and many people today and Father Father Ramiro was talking about yesterday, some of the, you know, prayer and fasting. These are not sort of things that you must do when you get a star in your little name badge like you do in McDonald's. I'm a three-star Christian because I've done prayer, Bible reading, and fasting today. They're, They're practices that the church fathers have found useful over the years, and they're the rhythms of Scripture. And we need to sort of draw on them rather than see them as a curriculum. And... One of the problems is, so you can end up with leaders who are very out of touch. The other problem is that you can end up with leaders who are very out of reach. And certainly I've met a a, a number of Christian leaders who seem to be doing all of these things so well, 
that I'm not quite sure where I stand in relation to that. And I talk to many people who say, I could never be like that. They know their Bible so well. They're always sharing their faith. They've done a 40-day fast. These kinds of things. And they're sort of set up there as, as things that we ought to do to be spiritually healthy. But the consequence of that is that your average punter is, is left down here somewhere. And I suppose one of the things I want to try and talk about today is that perhaps your average punter is not your average punter. Perhaps your average punter actually is someone who God loves deeply and is possibly more mature than the person who's got all of the activities and tasks ticked off. And it's so difficult, isn't it? It's so difficult to sort of describe the Christian faith in, 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 in a sort of really silly kind of way. One of the things I was thinking about was, who's seen Dead Poets Society? There's this lovely scene about halfway through where Robin Williams was, was teaching them literature. And this, this new guy decided that they must use this certain textbook, and it's Bloggin's 14th edition of Appreciating Poetry or something like that. And they start reading it, and he says, uh, it's so boring. And he says, a poem, if you've got that graph there, there, Jonathan, just on the next page. A poem can be described mathematically. What you do is you draw a graph of importance of the poem, say, for example, how many people have written books about this poem, versus the perfection of the poetry. You know, is it exactly an iambic pentameter or something like that? Do all the lines match? And if you plot a graph of the importance against the perfection, you get a measure of the worth of the poem. And that is complete tosh. I mean, personally, I'm not into poetry, but even I understand that that is absolute tosh. And any of you, you know, if I, lady who wanted to go up a mountain, if I got you to sort of plot a graph of the height of the mountain versus the inaccessibility of the mountain, the idea that that would equate to your experience of God is clearly rubbish. Although it might if you get stuck and fast and meditate while you wait for the helicopter to arrive. It might, it might, there may be a linear relationship of sorts but it's not like that is it and I think sometimes when we're thinking about spiritual development we can have a list of things that we ought to do and I'm not going to give you a list of things that you ought to do if if you want to read the list go and read David Watson discipleship go and read R. Kent Kent Hughes disciplines of a godly man there's a whole bunch of books you know um, celebration of discipline um, the cost of discipleship there's a whole bunch of things that take us through these spiritual disciplines and these tasks but if you're going to read them, remember to get a good night's sleep as well. Remember to go out and climb a mountain. And remember the next little bit that we're going to be talking about. And what I'd like to think about, just for the next, just a pause, if you like, just before we carry on to the next bit. When was the last time that you grew spiritually? Okay. Most of us have step changes at some time. So it, it may be the thing that brought you to focus if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, it could be the day you became a Christian. If you've been a Christian for a little while, there's probably been some step changes since then. I need to think for a moment about the time you last grew spiritually and what was the driving factor. Think about that for a couple of minutes and I'm maybe going to ask two or three people just to sort of share their story quickly with us, okay? Okay, does anyone feel brave enough to come and Tell us very quickly about a time when they grew spiritually. A bit of a risk for me. I have no idea what you're going to say, but, but come, and, come and say it anyway. If this seminar is written correctly, I hope I know what she's going to say. Um, I think this year after God healed me last summer, 
uh, uh, focus. And the reason, I think the thing that was a catalyst for that was, uh, sorry, the thing that was a catalyst for that was my uh, sort of, my, uh, the church I had been in kind of collapsed and broke up and I got quite, I felt uh, depressed and uh, God healed me. And out of, out of the loss of the, the church family, I had to find in God what I didn't have before. Thank you. Thanks very much. That's brilliant. Now I'm going to go, phew, thank heavens. That was exactly what I wanted. And I just want to just pick out a, a few things from that. There was no church program happening there. There was no course that was done. Now, there was an event which was focus, and one of the things that happens as focus is that there's an emphasis on healing, and that, that's great. But it, actually, the thing that was almost more important was what was happening in your life, that you, you were leaving one church, you were working things out for yourself, you were going through a, a, a difficult journey, and then you found yourself in a new place, and that was where you grew spiritually. And one of the things that sort of quite amuses me, and I, I'm guessing I could have had 20 sort of similar kinds of testimonies. It could be when someone was bereaved of a parent and actually that was when you grew spiritually because you had a choice to make to grow spiritually or 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 or, or to become very tired in your faith and there's lots of things that go on like that and I guess one of the things that sort of slightly amuses me is churches have got great programs in place but people often grow most because of something that's happening in their life or because of the stage they're at in their life that's one of the things I want to do this seminar on sort of staying alive because a lot of it is about understanding the stages. And then if you can benefit from a church program, that is fantastic. I don't think we ought to stop doing church programs. But actually it's what's going on in us. It's where we're at. It's the type of faith that we have that I think is most important in how we grow, how we grow spiritually. There's a, another book on discipleship. I've given you just a few references there in your handouts. It's called um, Discipleship, Living for Christ in the Daily Grind. And J. Heinrich Arnold was the leader of a, a set of Bruderhof communities, I think in Europe. And he had this wonderfully sort of humble sort of take on, on discipleship. And he said it's not just enough to give Christ what is good in ourselves, although that is important, even the, what were they saying in one of the other seminars today? Even the, even the sort of chocolate double fudge ice cream I read somewhere in the program. Or what Father Ramirez was saying last night about his, his academic career. We do need to give God what is good in ourselves. But it's not enough to give him that or to bring him our sins or to bring him our burdens. He wants our entire selves. If we do not give ourselves to him completely, we will never find the inner freedom and peace promised in the gospel. But that actually is quite scary, isn't it? It's to give your entire self to God. There's a lovely verse in the Psalm, Psalm 40, verse 2. Many of you will know it. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my foot on a rock and gave me a safe place to stand. And that is a wonderful, wonderful truth, isn't it? That God reached out to us, lifted us up out of the slimy pit and stood us on the rock. But it's also terrifying because all of a sudden you've got the entire wide plane of salvation to play in. You know, before at least you were trapped in a dead end job and, you know, you knew yourself, you knew you hated yourself, but you knew yourself. You know, now anything 
is possible. You've just got this amazing sort of vista as to where you go. And there's a lot of stuff being done about guidance and things like that as to, you know, are there particular things that God is calling you? Is he calling you to global alpha training? Is he calling you to, to work with the William Wilberforce Trust just to plug the sponsor? Um, but, you know, there is a lot of stuff on guidance, but it's a tremendously wide vista. Salvation we understand. Spiritual growth and spiritual direction is more difficult to understand because you're out of the pit. Anything is possible. Where in the garden do I play? Do I go to the orchard? Do I go up the hill? Do I hang out with other people? Do I go picking flowers? Do I till the ground? There is just so much to do. And the Bible talks about this a little bit. It talks about the difference between milk and meat. And there's a number of verses, aren't there? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2, I gave you meat, milk and not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Hebrews 5, 12 and 13, you ought to be teachers, yet you need milk and not solid food. Anyone who lives in milk, being still an infant, is not fully acquainted with the teachings. There's a really interesting little bit in, in Jewish law. Milk and meat, you're not allowed together if you're a Jew. And I thought that was a really interesting thing when I was researching this. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. I guess in part it's to do with the hygiene laws of the Old Testament. But you're not allowed milk and meat together. It's based on this wonderful verse in, um, in Exodus 23, verse 19. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Which, if you're the goat or the mother, I guess you can understand. But, but what the Jews were sort of saying is that milk and meat don't mix. There's a stage for milk where you go, wow. This is the gospel of salvation. And then there's other things to learn about the meat of the Christian life. What I want to do is cover a couple of those meats today. Let me just say one thing about milk, though. None of us go that far from our mother's breast. Okay, and we always need to stay at the foot of the cross. We always need to hold on to that true teaching about repentance. It's like what I was saying yesterday about making changes. The biblical counselors are correct. It does start with repentance, as the lady was saying over there. It does start with change for God. It does start with forgiveness, salvation. But there's other things that we can learn about going on. Does that make sense? You've got to stay at the foot of the cross, but you've also got the wide open plane of salvation to contend with. Okay. On your bits of paper, you've got two tables. And these are quite wordy. We'll start off on the side that is called Ericsson's Stages of Development. And I'm not claiming that this is the answer to spiritual development, but I wanted to give you something different. Because if you want to go and read a book about the spiritual disciplines, you can find one. Whereas you won't, you won't find Ericsson in most Christian bookshops. He's a, a secular um, psychologist, developmental psychologist, philosopher. But I, I really like him, and he's one of the people who I think understands narrative and journey and change in people's lives really well. So, so what Ericsson's stages are about is basically you've got these five stages in childhood, two stages in adulthood, and a stage in old, air, and I, 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 in old age. And I just want to go through them just sort of quite quickly, and then there's a few, a few questions at the bottom. So the first one is basic trust versus mistrust. Each stage, there's a question to be asked. Do I trust or don't I trust? And there's a, a conflict in, in the right-hand column. Do I hopefully step out or do I withdraw and hide away? And I'm sure you've all seen pictures of the sort of Romanian orphans who have learned not to trust and therefore hide away. And it's, it's that kind of 
infant stage, you know, will my mother come to me if I cry? There's something quite fundamental that is learnt there, and when we're nurtured, we learn to step out. And then when you're a little man or a little, little girl and you're a toddler and you're, you're trying to step out and you think, can I do my own thing? Will I be allowed to play or will I always be shouted down? And the end result of that will or compulsion is, you know, do I have my own will or do I just do exactly what I'm told that I'm passive and compliant? Initiative versus guilt, you go to preschool, this is, this is where my almost four-year-old is hanging out at the moment. I can exercise my will physically and emotional, emotionally. Is taking initiatives rewarded? Is trying to engage daddy in a big conversation rewarded? Or is daddy too busy? And the result of that sometimes is, you know, if that happens at school among peer groups as well, that you're not willing to stand out from the crowd, that you stay, stay hidden, stay inhibited. Industry versus inferiority, this is the, the lovely sort of stage when people are at school and they're just beginning to really get into subjects and, and that sort of stuff. I'm aware of my differing abilities in the peer group. Some are tall, some are short, some are good at math, some are spotty. There's a whole bunch of things going on. Can I stand out or do I try and blend in? Am I basically competent? And some people are easily competent, aren't they, at sports and science other people are competent at more unusual things, but some people feel they're not competent at anything and try and sort of sneak by against the wall of the corridor. When you get into adolescence, identity, do I grow up into whom I'm meant to be or do I rebel? One of the things that strikes me is that teenage rebellion is, is in some ways quite a, a Western thing. I remember um, Gordon MacDonald writing about this in one of his books about, about men. And he says what happens in, in Africa is that you grow up with the women in the village and then you get to the age of maturity and there's some kind of ritual. Perhaps you go out and kill a lion or a circumcised or something like this and then you move to be with the men and you assume your new identity and there's no teenage rebellion as such, whereas it almost seems in this country as though teenage rebellion is seen as the norm. And there is something about differentiating from your parents. But what Ericsson's talking about here is, you know, do you go for fidelity? Do you go with who you are meant to be? Or do you turn your back on that for a number of years, possibly for the rest of your life? Then you're getting into early adulthood, intimacy versus isolation. Am I ready to share my special identity with others? How far can I go in intimate relationships or do I withdraw from that? And of course, we know that marriage is a spectrum and there are some marriages that people do fully intimately share. Many marriages, something is held back. Marriage is a wonderfully tolerant thing. It can cope with gradual revelation over the course of the years. But the, the question here is, Am I going to fall in love or am I going to stay exclusive to a certain extent, but possibly still married, if that makes Does that make sense? You know, the idea that you are, you are fully ready to open yourself to another person or you need to keep quite a lot back. Generati generativity versus stagnation in late adulthood. We spend our early adulthood starting businesses, getting postgraduate qualifications, working out what our specialist field is, I like to think I'm still in my early adulthood. But, you know, we are, we are putting ourselves about, if that makes sense, as a way of finding out who we are and what our skills are. Late adulthood can be quite different because that actually ought to be the time of passing on 
what we've known to the next generation, of, of mentoring younger people to follow us behind us. Whereas I see a, a lot of... It, it doesn't mean you can't start a business in the second half of your life, but I see a lot of people starting a business in the second half of their life, and whereas they, what they ought to be doing is seeding into the business they were part of. And they're starting a business in the second half of their life for their own need to be busy uh, because they haven't moved on beyond that sort of early adulthood stage. Am I caring for others or am I self-absorbed? And then integrity versus despair, moving into old age. I take stock of my life, my past, with a T, sorry, my present and my limited future. Does the end game add up to a meaningful life? And if it does, that means that you can be an old, wise, gracious, you know those sparkly-eyed old ladies that we all want to be like, okay? That is wisdom. If you look back on your life and you have made a real pig's ear of it, there is limited amount of time to re-change that. Who's seen The Way? Um, I asked yesterday, didn't I? You know, Martin Sheen and Santiago de Compostelo. Here is a man in his not quite old age, but he's retired. He looks back on his life and he realizes he's made a mess of it. And the pervading emotion in the first half of that film is despair. Okay, as he looks back and thinks, I may not have time to set this right. And actually my son is dead and I can never set that right with him. So, so those are Ericsson's stages of development. I have done them a huge injustice by dashing through them at great speed and if any of you are psychologists and know about Ericsson's stages of development, please forgive me for butchering them. Um, this table and part of the one on the next page are based on a wonderful book by um, Fraser Watts and the team in Cambridge called Psychology for Christian Ministry. If you want to get into some of these psychological models that we've been talking about this, this week, that book by, by Fraser Watts at the bottom is a fantastic, if solid, read. Um, each of the three authors is a specialist in a very distinct area, and it's, it's, it's heavy going but fascinating. What I'd like you to do is spend a few moments in small groups. We've already touched a little bit on this first question. What stimulates your faith journey more, your church's agenda or your own life stage? Is there a, a right answer? You know, should churches carry on doing programs? How can... I, I haven't written them up, actually, Jonathan. It's on here. How can understanding common tensions at certain life stages help you reach out to that group. What, what I mean by that is if you are wanting to reach out to businessmen in the second half of their life, you know, senior executives, that kind of thing, how can an understanding of Ericsson's second stage help you with that and do you change what you do? And each tension has got in this right-hand column a positive or negative resolution as a result of the conflict. How can you help someone who's had a negative resolution? How can you help someone who is 70, is dying of cancer, and realizes they have made a pig's ear of their life? Okay, how, how can you help that person? So I'm going to give you a, a, good, a good five minutes. I might put on the Bee Gees again quietly. Um, a good five minutes just to discuss that in, in your small groups. And like I say, it's now halfway through day three of Focus, so do feel free to share and be a focused crowd. Off you go. There's lots and lots and lots to talk about here. Again, you know, I cannot cover Ericsson in five minutes. Too many Ks. Um, but joking apart, if you want to read a psychoanalyst, um, Ericsson's one of the more readable 
of the sort of near Freudian sort of sort of school. So um, if you want to get a book out and read some Ericsson, there's there's some fantastic. It's all short chapter kind of stuff, so you can really get into that. And you'll find more on Wikipedia, etc. The, the thing to point out is that because it's an analytical model, it's based on defense mechanisms, all these stages are passed through. There's a negotiation required before moving on to the next stage. That's slightly different to the next model that I want to share, which to a certain extent is stage-based. This is Fowler's model on the far side. To a certain extent, it's stage-based. But one of the key things about this is that we need people of every type of faith stage in a church so you know the most simple thing for example is you need childlike faith you also need complex thinkers if that makes sense you need a few woe betide of course the complex thinker who's forgotten to think like a child sometimes and has forgotten the abba father but um, you know we do need all types in, in 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 a church and that's one of the questions we'll pick up on so so fowler stages of faith is to go quickly through these these are not christian stages but they are spiritual and it's an American resource, so it is sort of Christian-ish in its, its background. The first stage here, they're, they're naught to six rather than one to seven. Um, but the first stage is a sort of toddler stage. And this is not about God as much as about faith. It's about, will this chair hold me when I stand on it? It's a very basic sort of concrete kind of faith. It's, is that person nice? You know, is it safe to touch that oven kind of sort of, sort of trust? And then as language develops, things get a bit more complicated. And um, people can ask questions. Asking questions about dark things is an important stage to go through. If any of you have got young children, you know it's all about... So, I mean, my... my little boy has got a box of animals at the moment and maybe he's watched the lion king too much but we've got the bad animals and the good animals and sometimes they kiss each other and sometimes they bite each other and you know we, we we've got to sort of let this, this this kind of thing go on um each of them has got a pastoral need at this stage so for the first one positive early relationships and a safe place to play allow trust to develop boundaries time to play, material to play with, stories from the Bible, yes, but also active imagination. Don't worry too much if your four-year-old wants to take Joseph out of Egypt onto a spaceship. That, that's okay. You know, the, this faith is exciting. Um, the sort of um, Jesus is like my big brother and um, the youth worker is a bit like Jesus and God is like the vicar or my dad or something is the next sort of stage, you know, but also quite a moral stage as well. You know, you get things like, but that's wrong, mummy. You know, it, it's wrong to do that. You shouldn't do that kind of thing. Working out faith and beliefs, reading stories, getting involved as to much what's in the story, asking questions about the story as well. Stage three, I think, is a really interesting stage, conventional stage, because I guess if I had to sort of pick one, that it, I, I guess I'm th thinking that um, networks and organizations can have face stages as well. And a big event like Focus, where there's lots going on and there's big themes being put out and there's things to be doing and there's stuff led from the front, one of the things can happen is, is you know, you develop a mainstream faith, you become a charismatic Anglican or whatever that is and you, you sort of fit into to what that means and, and that defines who you are and that's good because that's important because that breeds loyalty it breeds strong identity but the danger of course is if you then get let down in that environment so for example the person you were going out in the youth group with 
dumps you, you not only question everything, but you question your faith at that point as well because you've been hurt within, within a strong brand. And, you know, diversity, meeting someone who's different, meeting someone who's from a different faith group who believes things different to you can, can challenge you quite a lot pastorally at that point. Dealing with big issues like um, sexuality, race, those kinds of things, you know, it's actually really important to deal with them well because they can actually rock a conventional stage. Reflective stage, you get, you perhaps are like that for a few years and then you go, but it's not that simple. Maybe there is more to life than being a charismatic Anglican. It's not a bad place to start, but maybe there's more to life than that. Maybe life is more complex than that and I want to ask some questions. Am I allowed to go off the map? Am I allowed to disagree? Those kinds of things. And faith is about experiencing difference and holding some of those questions. And again, the question is, do you allow yourself to hold questions and stay within the mainstream? The danger is that you you leave the church at that point and you say, I'm not allowed to be different. I'm not allowed to question anything here. I'm going to go. And I know that. I know that's not the case. The conjunctive stage, bit of a strange word, but this this is a sort of a midlife crisis kind of thing. Um, You're stepping back. You're stepping back. You're asking big questions at this point. Truths are interdependent. You're going to want to discuss things. You're going to want to talk about things. If someone's got a point of view, you're probably going to have a counter-argument. The danger is that faith can become very academic, esoteric, individualistic. No one seems to do it like you. And I think the danger at that point is that you take yourself off and you form a church, which is perfect because it's only got one member in it. And that, that person is you because you've become quite quite cynical and community is something that has to be worked at and we all know that actually community what's the definition of community when when good friends and wise people turn their chairs inwards and talk well nobody said they agreed with each other it's that sort of definition of community when when good friends and wise people turn their chairs inwards and and talk well that's a gordon mcdonald quote Community has to be worked out. And then you get to this wonderful sort of universal... I've put age... Sorry, it should be greater than 60. Greater than 60. Probably some of us reach it before 60. Um, Jesus being the only example I can think of. Um, But often it's something that is associated with later life and wisdom. The ability to treat all people in all situations with compassion because they're seen as part of a universal community led by love and justice. Faith of this kind is rare. Faith is love. And that, of course, has been one of the big themes of this focus, hasn't it? The idea that actually it's about relationships and loving people. And the news is, friends, that we will be working at it, probably most of us, for at least the next few decades. But it is, it is possible. The pastoral risk at that point is overcommitment. And actually it's about growing young leaders into that model rather than doing everything yourself, taking the risk to stand back and realize that the people coming up might not be quite as compassionate as perhaps you are, but they need to learn that and work through into that. So those are a fouler stages of faith, and I'd like you to do something similar again just in your small groups. What do you recognize of your own journey in fouler stages? Where might you be at the moment? How have your life stages, i.e. your Ericsson bits and your faith stage, been related And also Fowler says that all these stages are equally valuable and needed in a church. This is a partly 
you know, consequential model, one follows the other, but it, it's not necessarily all are needed in a church. Are there some that you were tempted to admire and they're perhaps undervalue your own stage or to disrespect and perhaps disrespect the people who are at that stage? So quite tough questions to discuss there, but if you want to get into your small groups and just discuss that for, again, five minutes and then we'll draw to a close with some time for questions. Just to close, I want to give you just one sort of top tip if I can um, you'll see it right at the very bottom there of um, your list Bill Hybels Axiom Axiom is a book written by by Bill Hybels and there's this wonderful simple structure for spiritual development and staying healthy which I thought was just too good not to share my apologies I haven't written the, um, the four sort of things there but what he says is that you have to sort of put some patterns in and he, he talks about weekly sorry a daily devotion okay and that could be, I guess, reading the Bible. It could also be taking the dog for a walk, or both, or read the Bible on your iPod while you take the dog for a walk and crash into a tree. But some kind of daily habit. I think daily things are habits, aren't they? You know, we pretend to get all emotionally excited about them, but actually daily things need to become habits. Weekly worship of some kind where on a weekly basis, Hebrews 10, 20, I think it says, is don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You know, we need a weekly corporate something if our daily thing is individual. So some kind of weekly corporate activity. A monthly meditation. And this may just be, it could be once a month you have a chance to do a couple of hours drive. Don't put the radio on. Just just use that time to, to think. Or it may be if you... I mean, I can't do any more with, with young kids, but perhaps once a month, you know, go and walk up that mountain or a small mountain. Once a month is a small mountain, isn't it? That you go and go for some kind of walk. And then an annual away day, and that could be the big mountain or it could be a day in a silent monastery or it could be um, hitchhiking to focus. I don't know, you know, but it, it, and it could be an annual festival like focus, but, you know, spend some time for you, not just learning during that. So a daily devotion that's for you, a weekly corporate worship, a monthly meditation, which is small, but doable and significant enough and an annual away day of some kind, you might have to put a little more effort into it. I used to go and do some land clearance at a local estate and then hang out in one of the lodges for a couple of hours and just read a gospel. Just to just try and do that that once a year and really, really enjoyed that. You you work out what's right for you. I was going to get lots of sort of ideas of what works, but perhaps you can discuss that over your mochaccino or whatever's coming next. We have probably got some time for questions, but that is all the content for today. Thanks so much. Just two or three questions. Yep. You have to stand up and shout if you want to ask a question, if that's okay. Yep. <laughs> um, poss- possibly on, does everyone go through these stages before they die? The, the Ericsson ones are sequential. So the idea is that you work through those, and if you don't negotiate a stage, you are what the analysts would call regressed or, you know, stuck at that stage, retentive. Okay, so, so um, 
fixated is the term I'm looking for. Okay, so you're stuck at that sort of stage. The, the, the fouler ones are, you can see how they would go in a stage. It would be nice to think we all work through them. Of course, sadly, we know that we, we don't. I guess some people might sort of do the last few on their deathbed as they realize that love actually is the most important thing. I think quite a lot of people do, do die not having gone through them all. Um, I haven't gone through them all yet, and I hope I do. You know, and I, I've been spending quite a bit of time thinking about what I want to do over the next couple of years, and one of them is to think about things like servant leadership, what it means to have the... I'm, I'm 38 this year, so I'm approaching the sort of second half of my adult career, if that makes sense. You know, what does that mean? So I'm beginning to think about that, and if I don't, I won't. Yeah, anything else? Top tips for how to relax on a day-to-day basis. I think it's different. Um, I am a psychiatrist. I actually work at the hospital in the next town. That's partly because I don't want to live in my catchment area because I have some patients who have reason to dislike me. Um, But actually, it means I have a 20-minute drive home, and that that works for me. I also have some other patients who I have absolutely no problem with meeting in Sainsbury's, but there's there's some I wouldn't want to. Um, So I live away, and, and a short commute can actually be good. It's nice to walk to work, so maybe a short walk. Um, Other people, it is a game of squash. Other people, it's a power nap. I think there's so many different things, but it's got to be a barrier, a boundary activity of some kind. You know, you can't go straight from work to home. It's actually quite nice to have a little bit of something. I know one person who used to homework, and they used to come out of their study, walk around, lock the study, walk around the block, and then go into their living room. And that was their way of turning off, even though actually all they had to do was go downstairs. And they kept the study locked. So some kind of boundary activity would be my top tip. Anything? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what Fowler did, Fowler's was an observational model. So he interviewed a few thousand people and said, these are the stages I've found. So he wasn't sort of coming at it with a theoretical head to say, my model says you must work through it. He said, epidemiologically, I found these seven types of people. So I guess you can do a bit of dot the dot. And certainly with Fowler, you know, you, you can jump out of order. You do need all types in a church. There's not a stage that any one is better than the other, although we would like to be like that sort of Yoda character in stage, the last stage, wouldn't we? But, you know, th- there is that sort of stage that everything is okay and everything is valid. Yeah, right at the back. Just stand up and shout, sorry. I think, I mean, obviously some people have external circumstances. Yeah, I just repeat it. You know, if you, if you are, let's say, you know, 60 and stage four, does that mean that you haven't tried hard enough? Um, I think some people are at a stage because of external circumstances. They may be caring for sick parents, for example, and that's where they need to be. They perhaps need to go back to the childlike stage and just just do that kind of role for a while. So, so I wouldn't want people to think that they've failed if they haven't worked through the stages, and certainly Fowler's stages are all... Um, all are good. There's some alternatives. One of the, the HTB staff was chatting to earlier. There's this thing called the feminist spiral, apparently. So if you don't like viral st- spirals, uh, Fowler's stages, you can do the feminist spiral. I have no idea what it is. I didn't like to ask. But it's different. And I think, you know, the idea that these things are linear stages, perhaps we in the West automatically think achievement, goal, I will tick, I've done all seven, hurrah, t-shirt. Um, you know, and that, that's not the aim of this. The aim is not to set you standards. The aim is to explore spiritual stages. Yep. Um, does anyone not ask the question? Please take two more questions. Yeah. 
Go on then. Yep, stand up and shout. So how does, how does church leadership cater to these different stages? I, I think you're right, because, you know, I was saying at the beginning that sometimes churches can have programs, and it can look like a one-size-fits-all. The skill, I think, is to have your program but allow different responses. So, for example, people do the Alpha course for a whole bunch of reasons. Now, of course, the celebration is most there when someone does the Alpha, church, Alpha course from a, a non-Christian background and becomes a Christian. And that, that's brilliant. And that is partly what the Alpha course is aimed at. But if you do the Alpha course to see whether or not you believe your parents' faith or you do it because you want to refresh your faith later in life, that's fine. And I think the advice for the church leadership is allow that tolerate that encourage that share those answers celebrate diversity and also don't insist there's a right answer i I love the way that the alpha material is getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer possibly as it moves into more countries there's less words to translate but actually it's good because it means that your discussions can be quite open and the only constraints are the word of god and actually we're allowed to question that sometimes I didn't say prove it wrong. I said question it. Okay, so, so I think, you know, run your program in your church, but allow difference, allow disagreement, allow exploration journey, and realize that you're talking to people of different faiths. And just because it's your church program, it's not maybe the thing that's going to make them change. It can just be a tool for change. Quick question at the front, and then we'll stop. How can you help someone who's in need but doesn't believe and that they don't think? Oh, who, who doesn't believe, as in doesn't believe in God? Yeah, I mean, I think these, these things are not necessarily Christian. So I think most people would be able to identify spirituality and that their spirituality has perhaps gone through these stages. So they may have been a, a very keen environmentalist for example and then as they've got older in life they've realized that it's about more than just the environment but they want to sort of bring more things i'm I'm thinking off the top of my head but my, my point is these things are not christian things these things are based on the observation of humans so i think you can use them with someone who's not a christian quite easily I better call it a day because our time is up but i'm quite happy to hang around at the front thank you so much tomorrow just a quick plug healing Healing together, how to have a healing ministry and not destroy love and community at the same time. Okay, tantalizing. Hopefully see some of you tomorrow. Thank you.